Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest lecture, and this is on pitfalls and errors in body CT, what they are and how to avoid them. And I've been giving lectures on this topic for the last couple of years, and we keep improving on these lectures, and we keep finding more errors. And um, I think it's a very important topic because I think all of us, if we're aware of mistakes we make, are less likely to make them. And of course, uh, this slide was really hard to make, getting it upside down and everything. But in the old days, you remember when we had slides in carousels, it was not uncommon for a speaker to have the slide upside down. And although everyone really thought they did it correctly and you should have checked your slides before you gave the lecture, many people didn't do that because they assumed they knew how to do it perfectly and would get it right. And many times they got it wrong. So with that in mind, let's see how we can do better. Now the question is, how often do errors occur? And there's a few different articles, but this article by Kim is kind of depressing in some ways, right? In daily radiology practice, the rate of interpretation error is between 3 and 4%. However, if the studies contain pathology, then the error rate can even reach 30%. That's unbelievable, right? One out of three times someone's making a mistake. And then when you look more carefully at the mistakes, the majority of errors were under-reading, 42% where the finding is simply missed. And we always make that point, right? If you find a liver lesion, or a pancreatic lesion, or a splenic lesion, or a kidney lesion, at least you can start and try to figure out what it is. If you don't see the lesion, you haven't even left the gate. This article does speak about things like checklists, perhaps as a way of decreasing error. Uh, and in fact, checklists are something we'll speak a little bit about later in this lecture, but I've discussed that before that there's a lot of push from the ACR for checklists. It works well in other industries. And it's somewhat painful for some people, but many people do like it. And I think in many instances, it indeed can be helpful. Another article about errors by Wang, our data indicates that interpretive errors rather than communication errors are the most generic cause of malpractice suits. And again, I'm not worrying about malpractice suits, but again, you could see that sometimes people talk about how, oh, radiologists reported a nodule and the surgeon didn't know about it or didn't follow up. And those errors do occur. But again, the majority of errors are errors of interpretation. And the same article makes the point that breast is always number one. But if you look at the bottom of the list, pulmonary and GI, common areas for CT, are unfortunately moving up the list. So again, it's this misdiagnosis, but the lack of recognition of pathology is indeed often the case. Another article, this is going back a few years, eight CT lessons we learned the hard way. Majority of errors are false negative interpretations. Recurring false negative occurs, failure to appreciate bowel or pancreatic disease, PEs, vascular bone, omentum, incidental findings at the periphery, all sorts of things. That about covers everything you can see on a CT scan, of course. But you can see, regardless of the article, here's the list, the same problems come up over and over again. And perhaps you would think this shouldn't be an issue because people have written about it, but indeed it is an issue. And in fact, this article says perhaps maybe we should do double reading. There's no doubt in my mind double reading, and we all know that you can have triple reading also, probably would decrease errors, assuming every person individually looks at it in its entirety. But, you know, the reality is for all of us these days, we barely can get single reads done, let alone double reads. So that's a great idea, but not very practical. Now, we looked at errors for a while. This article by uh, Karen Horton and Pam Johnson did make the point that 
we see certain errors repeated over and over again, even by the most experienced users. And so we decided to look carefully at those errors and try to figure out how do we could avoid them. And in fact, I've mentioned this before, and I've mentioned this at some of the meetings I speak at, is that we have a conference every two weeks where I present missed cases or interesting cases or difficult cases or challenging cases. You come up with the term you want. And in fact, we get CME credit now. But I think you need to somehow formally in your own department, your own group, whatever, come up with some sort of way of looking at errors in a very safe manner, in a way of having people understand things better. And it's a teaching conference. This is the simplest thing in the world. You show people potential pitfalls. Simply doing these typical things where we do, where we look at prior studies and say if we agree or disagree, that's wonderful. Jayco likes it, so we all need to do it. So just do it for your 2% of cases. But in reality, no one is learning anything from that technique. So let's go back and say, well, why do we miss things on CT? Sometimes it's a strategy. You're doing an abdominal CT and you're not thinking about the chest and there's a few cuts and sure enough there was a PE. Sometimes it's poor understanding of pathology. Uh, Overcalling or undercalling the presence of bowel pathology may be just a lack of experience. And sometimes it's just assumptions. You see incidentally a liver lesion or a renal lesion and that's not the primary cause of the study. And you look at it very quickly and it looks kind of like hemangioma maybe or the renal lesion's well-defined and maybe it looks low density and maybe you assume it's a cyst and it's not. And also, of course, we also all get fooled. Rule out appendicitis. Well, you better look at the mesenteric vessels as well. You better look at the left upper quadrant. And we know incidental findings occur in every organ and organ system and in every part of the scan. And so you need to be looking and pick up that incidental renal cell carcinoma or that incidental mesenteric vessel dissection or that incidental carcinoid tumor. So really, if you ask me to give a quick understanding, a quick explanation of what the solutions are, number one, you need to be aware of the pitfalls. If you know about them, at least you can hopefully avoid them. One of the things I'll speak about and always discuss is how you need to look at non-axial images. And yes, looking at coronals and sagittals, if you're uncertain, is great. But even when you're certain there's nothing going on, you better at least give a cursory look. And again, hopefully someday in the next 30 years, someone will come up with new workstations which will make these advanced visualization tools easier to use. And I just don't mean coronals and sagittals, I mean 3D imaging. But that is not happening anytime soon. I got the funny feeling. Now, let's look at some of the big errors. Question, do you need to look at the full field of view on a CT scan? And if so, when and why? Well, you remember with cardiac CT, one of the arguments was, hey, we're looking at the coronaries. I don't care about the lung. No one asked you to look at the lungs. And radiologists argue you need to look at the lungs and the field of view. And cardiologists said, who cares? I only care about the coronaries. Well, at the end of the day... Insurance companies and payers said, no, you need to look at everything. Cardiac disease typically occurs in the same age group as lung disease. And on a typical cardiac CT, you might have 60 to 70% of the lungs. So get over it. Just look at it. But the same thing could be said about the spine. How many of you do targeted T-spines or L-spines? You don't reconstruct the full field of view, but perhaps you should. Because who knows what lurks beyond the spine? And we'll talk about that in a moment, and I'll look at some examples. So a triple rule-out chest pain study, 
coronary artery disease, no aortic aneurysm or dissection. You can see the calcified plaque in the patient's right coronary and other vessels, but there's no critical stenosis. And so that's what you would read it at. But if you go beyond the patient's targeted field of view, you'll notice there's a mass in the right lower lung, and this mass ends up being a lung cancer. So incidental lung cancer picked up, but it would have been missed if the targeted images only were looked at and not the full field of view. So again, in this case, this was probably the cause of the patient's pain, or even if it wasn't, this was the cause of what would have been a shortened lifespan for this patient, and this was resected. Now, in terms of looking at the lumbar spine, for example, this article by Lee does make the point that extra spinal findings were present in 40% of adult outpatients undergoing lumbar spine CT exams for back pain. Most of these findings, two-thirds almost, were totally incidental and really weren't important. But if you didn't use the full field of view, you would not have been able to see the majority of these. And many of them were important, including renal cell, transitional, CLL, sarcoid, abdominal aortic aneurysms. In 4.3% of patients, they found very important findings. So the answer is, I think you are stuck. You need to reconstruct the full field of view, and someone needs to look at it. You don't need to reconstruct every 0.75 by 0.5, but at least every 3 millimeters or 5 millimeters, you need to look at the full field of view. Okay. Next thing, what about topograms? You know, in the old days of CT, when we had film, this, the topogram was always the first image and the last image. The last image had the lines of the scan. The first image was just a localizing study. Well, now the topogram sits separately. The fact is no one looks at the topogram. This article by Berlin that was just published very nicely shows that it's not so simple. That article speaks about a lawsuit that caused millions of dollars where a child had fallen, the CT scan was read as negative, and in retrospect seems negative, but you look at the topogram, there's obviously a compressed skull fracture. Totally missed, a total disaster. But it was in the scalp view, and the defense of the radiologist was, we don't look at scalp views. Well, we decided to go back and look. Two very experienced plain film radiologists looked at over 2,000 straight topograms, looking to see what information was present, and they did find a number of findings, and of course, most of them were confirmed or refuted by the CT scan, but others were not found. Remember, you get a topogram of the abdomen, but you get some chest there. It's easy to pick up a lung nodule. You get a topogram of the chest, you may have a full field of view showing the arms, which you don't see on the routine axial images, and you miss a fracture or you miss other findings. So there are many findings that were indeed, or indeed important. Cardiomegaly was the most common, but there are others that are very important. And so the conclusion is you need to look at the full field of view images whenever you do one of these studies. So it's indeed very, very important uh, to look at the topogram. I know it's a pain and I know most of you don't do it and we didn't do it either, but yes, we are doing it now. When I mentioned about PACs, let me just say, is your PAC system a problem? It could very well be our PAC system, which is being replaced. Sometimes the old films don't appear. The computer says, Fishman, you don't need the old films. Sometimes it's so slow to retrieve them that you give up and you don't wait for them. All sorts of issues, but we all know the importance of comparison films. 
Uh, in many institutions, the PAC systems are so old or so slow or so limited that we are using an old operating system, and that really limits what we can do, even with the best scanners. We need to really make certain that our PAC systems match our scanners, because at the end of the day, if they don't, interpretation is going to fail. Now, when you talk about interpretation, I did read this interesting article, and I thought I would share this with you because it makes several points. Uh, we have a tertiary uh, referral center at Hopkins, and we do a lot of outside reads, and often we'll change the report. Now, to be fair, we have more information than the initial clinician had. We're looking a bit more carefully at a specific process, but this uh, article Tertiary center change in management in 37% of cancer patients, important information in 50% seemed very high to me. And it was across the board, lung cancer number one, but it was in breast and colon and pancreas. And I was looking to say, wow, either these second people were really good or the first people were really bad. But then when you look at this article carefully, you actually read that they did not look at the radiology reports. Original reports were not available at the time of the conference, and we don't know if there was a misdiagnosis or a misunderstanding or whatever. But since the management decisions made by the oncologist, it's his opinion that counted. So what they did is they went on the accuracy. Whatever the oncologist said, that was the report. Well, that is the craziest thing in the world. But it does emphasize it's people aren't reading your reports. People are not looking or they think they can read it themselves. And this is a major disaster because imagine treating patients based on the oncologist's opinion and not the reason, uh, not the original report. This also makes the point of why second reads are so important. Curbside reads, well, you may be misinterpreted. It's very important. So again, it doesn't matter who the source of the error was, it's just the fact there is an error present, and this is indeed very, very critical. We do talk about communication errors, uh, and again, uh, that is an issue. We need to be certain that we deal with referring physicians, that we can reach them, that we report them, that things are followed up. So indeed, this whole communication thing is very important, okay? So those are some of the general overviews. Let's look specifically at some of the topics. You know, I spoke about bladder cancer in many lectures, but typically I spoke about staging bladder cancer, looking at nodes, role of CT, use of CT, dedicated CT cystoscopy, but I never thought about bladder cancer as a misdiagnosis. It's a common diagnosis, 72,000 plus cases in the U.S. every year, and most are transitional cells. But you know, the problem is with CT getting better, with more arterial phase imaging, we are picking up incidental bladder cancers when they're very small. And in fact, we are also not only picking them up, but the way we noticed we were picking them up was because we noticed we were actually missing them. And the fact I'm going to tell you is you need to look at the bladder on every CT scan carefully, and particularly if you're like us, where you're doing lots of arterial phase imaging, you're doing lots of vascular imaging, and you're distending the bladder with oral contrast, you better look very carefully. Incidental bladder cancers are often best seen on arterial phase imaging. My rule is now any enhancement of the bladder wall needs to be investigated further and you need to be suspicious for a transitional cell carcinoma. Don't assume a subtle bladder enhancement zone is of no clinical significance. And at times, if you're in doubt, coronals and sagittals can be helpful. Here's a nice example of an incidental bladder cancer at about 7 o'clock. This was a study done to look at the aorta and look at aortic aneurysm. But there it is. It's a flat lesion. It's a bit over a centimeter. Bladder cancer. 
uncertain. There it is nicely shown to you in the coronal view. And when you got the late phase, there's how the lesion looked. Sometimes the lesions are in fact better seen on the late phase imaging, but we often don't have the late phase imaging. The only thing you may have is the arterial phase, and that's when you can make the great diagnosis. And here it is side by side, early and late. It looks different, but you can see in some ways it's much more subtle if you're looking quickly on the arterial phase images. So again, very important. Another example, very similar type case, almost the same location, very subtle blush that's present. Here it is again on the coronal view, if you didn't believe me. And there it is late, this is biopsy proven transitional cell carcinoma. And yes, you see it in the late phase imaging with contrast in the bladder. You were lucky because the, it was in the posterior bladder and the contrast was there, which is not always the case. And you also have to recognize that you didn't call this a tiny clot or filling defect. You did call it a bladder cancer. Another example, this is very subtle. You look at the posterior bladder wall. Maybe that's the prostate pushing in, but the more you look at it on the study done for aortic aneurysm, you can see in the sagittal view that it indeed is present. Look at the delayed phase. Wow, in the delayed phase, you might read that as negative. You would assume that's partial averaging posteriorly. So again, sometimes the early phase is the only phase you're going to appreciate the process, so you need to look very carefully. Our rule now is always look. And to show you how difficult it is, there's an outside study in a major lawsuit that was settled. Patient came to the ER with acute abdominal pain. The radiologist correctly recognized ischemic colitis. The patient had surgery. Uh, in the haste of the moment, non-contrast CT scan, the radiologist did not notice that mass in the bladder, which became noticed a couple years later when the mass got larger and the patient had metastasis. Yes, it's there. Yes, it's easy to miss. And yes, it wasn't the reason for the study, and the radiologist saved the patient's life, but you missed the bladder cancer. So you need to look very, very careful. Another common source of error is when we look at an image and don't really think about some area. For example, you're doing an abdominal CT for the pancreas, and you don't think about looking at the lungs. You may look quickly to look for lung mets, but you don't think about looking for PE. There's no reason the patient doesn't have clinical symptoms. So you may not look at the lungs because you didn't look at the lung windows and you miss a lung met. So again, you need to be very, very careful. And there's certain areas like the PE, which is really going to be a problem. So let's do this. Let's stop at this point and we'll come back and we'll look at the pulmonary emboli.